That was Battle Scars by Guy Sebastian. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM, and this is Anthology Season 2, Volume 7, the New Year's Special, and I'm joined again by Ben. Second episode in a row, I've been promoted to main uh, co-guest, whatever you want to call it. I like it. Yeah, talk into the microphone, Ben. Nope, I'll turn your microphone on. That's what I'll do. Uh, <laughs> you were, you were, his microphone was turned off because he insisted on sneezing into the microphone, so... Um, not entirely my fault. He was being gross. No, you're the desk runner. It is e- entirely your fault. Anyways, once again, a wonderful uh, experience being a promoted to full uh, show guest. Um, just like last week with our Christmas Eve special, um, we've got a good show in store for you. Uh, some theatre news first up, as always, followed by some amazing content. Oh, yeah, we're going to be counti- counting down our top 20 films of the decade, which was a very hard list for us to compile. Oh, like I said last week, it took over... I'd say well over two hours, near two and a half hours for us to first of all compile, Jake compiled a 50 movie shortlist, then we sort of discussed together what the top 20 of those movies were, and then arguably the hardest part of the whole thing was determining the order of those 20 movies. So oh, yeah, when it came down to deciding which ones were better than the others, that was... That was tricky. I'm very happy though with our... I'm very ecstatic with our with the order that we eventually settled on. I think it's it's going to be controversial. But uh, yeah, no it's, doubt. It's, um, <laughs> it always will be. And I want to do a little bit of, and I'll do this again before we start the countdown, that it's a little bit of a disclaimer that we took into account not just what were the, um, the best in terms of objective film mm. qualities or which were the most influential, but like a combination of all of those factors. Yeah. So uh, good films. Uh, we also tried to take into account the cultural impact that they've had um and and that sort of thing so it's for us these are the 20 movies that if you look back on the 2010s in 100 years time these are the ones that you'll remember it by and i will say as well obviously it is you know when you are looking at how good a film is cultural impact is something that is important but it's not the only thing that you should consider for instance the room had a lot of cultural impact and putting that on the top 20 list of the 2000s decade would be rather uh well unwise yeah but i think when you take when you combine that with um uh, influence in other films, uh, legacy, as well as how good the film was in of itself. That's probably the best criteria that you can use to compile a list of this nature. Absolutely. At least that's what we sort of thought, and it's our show, so that's what you get. Fight us. Exactly. Or <laughs> um, well, it's Jake's show, rather. So we're going to be uh, finishing off the decade in style. We'll, of course, be talking about our movie reviews of the week as well. Yes. Including I'll be uh, responding to Ben's review from last week of uh, Rise of Skywalker. We both had to do that just purely because we're both uh, Star Wars fans. Yes. And uh, Ben will be doing a personal favourite, I believe. Yes, I'm, very, um, I'm doing the Rocky Road Picture Show, a, certainly one of my more uh, treasured movies that I've seen. I was originally going to do Jumanji because I am very, very keen to do that film. However, I have not yet had the chance to go and see it in cinema, so that will be next week. So apologies to all. Um, you won't be getting Jumanji from me tonight, but you will get to hear my thoughts on Arguably the most famous movie adaptation of a musical. Yeah. Uh, no, well, I'd, I'd say it tops Les Mis and Phantom. Controversial. And don't you dare say Cats from 2019. I'd say Moulin Rouge. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, no, that's fair. Ooh. But that's, a, st- that's a debate for a different yeah, time. Yeah, I still I maintain Rocky Horror is better. Oh, a more, inf- more a better adaptation. Anyway. No, you'll hear that. You'll hear Jake's response to my thoughts on Rise of Skywalker and much more. Yes. Well, we'll get into the theatre news first of all, so we can get that out of the way and get into all the wonderful content for tonight. So, Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, everything that's happening into the future is happening in 2020 because we're only a matter of hours away from the new year at this point. 
Um, so Being I'll just honest. make quick mention. It's going to be a pretty quick news section uh, for this week. We've got uh, Packer and Sons uh, at the Upstairs Theatre at Belvoir Street Theatre in Sydney. Uh, it's back for its its season has been extended due to popular demand until the fifth of January, um, and it's based it's inspired by Paul Barry's books The Rise and Rise of Kerry Packer, Rich Kids, and Who Wants to Be a Billionaire. Uh, it's a play that it, that features some really complicated dramatic portraits and a, a sense of public interest in the private lives of the Packers. And it's about power in Sydney and fathers and sons across generations and the childhood traumas that drive us forward. So the Packer family, very interesting um, topic. And that that is has been extended until this weekend, the 5th of January at the Upstairs Theatre at Belvoir in Sydney. Of course, there are uh, plenty of other things going on in Sydney as well, but that's kind of the main one that I wanted to get across because it does close this weekend. Mm. Um, and it is pretty quiet at the moment because everyone's taking a well-earned break for the new year. Absolutely. And to anyone that has is traveling that's still taking time to maybe stream us or just catch us, um, thank you, first of all. But we do hope that you enjoy your time away and get back um, to 2020 in the new year with a renewed vigor um it's been a very trying year for a lot of people especially in rural areas of australia so come back refreshed replenished and ready for one hell of a way to kick off the new decade absolutely lovely of you to say ben you're welcome yeah we'll go down to melbourne now where uh songs for nobodies is also closing this weekend the 5th mm. of january that is on at the arts center in melbourne at the fairfax studio um and it's Bernadette Robinson's in it, and she returns in this hit play, which was first performed 10 years ago. It's a one-woman play of imagined encounters between five different characters, the mid-20th century divas Judy Garland, Patsy Cline, Billie Holiday, Edith Piaf, and Marie Callas. Maria Callas, sorry. Marie, where did that come from? Um, so she is playing all five of those characters. It's an absolutely spellbinding play by all accounts, and it does close at the Art Centre in Melbourne on the 5th of January. So once again, now's a good time to see if you can snatch up some of those last seats. Yes, indeed. Um, it's interesting. I've, I've always found it an interesting kind of genre, the, the one-man or one-woman play. Um, There'd be a lot of work, that's for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely draining on, on uh, plenty of people's abilities, I'm sure. All right, back up here to Armadale, where the countdown continues till Spring Awakening. 44 days to go. Mm. Um, very, very exciting. Get your tickets uh, through the link on the Facebook event. Just look up Little Fish Entertainment or Spring Awakening, and I'm sure you'll be able to find that. There is a try booking link there, and tickets are on sale now. They will, I would say, by all probability, sell out. So don't wait. Um, don't do the Armadale thing. Don't do the Armadale thing. Ben hates the Armadale thing. Uh, it's just annoying. It's just annoying. It's counterproductive, counterintuitive, and it just seems stupid. Yeah, well, it, it's a tendency, and I can understand kind of why as well. You don't want to commit a date, or you don't want to spend the money right away until it's right there and the, the benefit's right there for instant gratification. But that tends to um, tends to come back to bite you because the good seats aren't, le aren't available, or so shows such as I... I dare say little fish it will. will sell out so I, mean, you I, I would be astounded if it didn't sell out oh yeah particularly given the quality that chicago had i would say that they they are at least going to be selling a good majority of their seats so get mm. your tickets very quickly indeed uh favorite shorts as we've mentioned in a couple of shows previously they are looking for uh playwrights 
So if you happen to have a uh, script that is 15 minutes or shorter, maybe even several of them, or you think you have the ability to write one, uh, they are looking for submissions. You can find the contact details for that at adms.org.au. It's a wonderful platform if you uh, fancy giving it a go at writing or directing or acting and you're just not sure how an audience is going to respond to your work. Well, it's a wonderful, uh, casual, low commitment kind of way to, to really get out there in front of a, a legitimate audience. And generally a load of fun. Yeah, because if you bomb, you never have to do anything ever again. And it's only favorite shorts, so nobody cares. Exactly. No offense to ADMS. Everyone cares about favorite shorts, but no It's one. not a huge deal if you bomb out. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a big deal. We've seen plenty of wonderful ones and plenty that didn't quite Sucked. work out the way that... I was going to be a bit more polite than that, but okay. No, I wasn't. It sucked. Um, but it... it <laughs> The way that's the way it goes, and no, that's what that's what favorite shorts is there for. So. And I will say this: even the director of, or the writer of the suckiest play should take consolation from the fact that they at least had a go. Yes, absolutely. It's it's a. Uh, and that's what and I'll tell myself only, when mine eventually sucks. <laughs> you can only give it a go, and uh, favorite shorts is a wonderful platform that ADMS so graciously provides to do that. And lastly, we will, of course, mention She Kills Monsters, which is coming up in March. Tickets go on sale in a matter of weeks. Uh, mm. I believe the 10th of January. Don't quote me because I haven't got the date in front of me. But it is early to mid-January that tickets go on sale. Uh, that'll be down at the Capitol Theatre in Tamworth, and it's going to be a wonderful show. Um, so don't miss out on any of those. Uh, book your tickets for Spring Awakening and She Kills Monsters now. And if you happen to have a few short scripts lying around, Favourite Shorts is the place for you. One last mention of one more thing. We have a professional magician uh, for the kids coming to Armadale on the 24th of January, so just before the uh, Australia Day weekend, hmm. uh, performing one show only at the bowling club on that day. I do believe that entry is free, um, so that should be excellent. Take the kids along. It should be a load of fun. It's called Abracadabra. Um and it's it's the, uh, Jake the Magician, I believe his stage name is. And Jake the Magician. I believe so. Okay. I've heard good things. And he will be coming to Armadale for that one show only. So note that down in your diaries the 24th of January. There is a Facebook event page if you'd like to know more information. Well, what a show we have in store, Ben. Should be one heck of a, a good experience. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a long a long time in the making putting together this this list kind mm, of 10 years in fact <laughs> ten, 10 years of all of them being made but for us as well sitting up sitting up late mm. working out um saying goodbye to some of our favorite films that unfortunately just didn't make the cut and yeah spoiler alert kicking kingsman off the list was hard for me to do oh i i can imagine it was i just think there was too many good films oh absolutely and we, the thing there were so many good films that edging, having to select 20 was tough. Oh, we got to a point where we had three or four spots and about 12 films and left in consideration. Too. It was very tough to cull just most of those and narrow it down to a, a best three of those. But um, That being said, I do think that our list is pretty extensive and I do think we've managed to select the cream of the crop. We've covered a good number of bases in terms of... Um, the, the big blockbusters that have really defined the decade, some of the films that have really stood out from a more um, filmic perspective. We've really, we've really covered a lot of bases in terms of genre and, and everything as well, so I'm quite happy with it as a list. Mm. Um, I, think it, I think it does really cover what this decade will be remembered for in film. 
Well, we, so. uh, I think we're going to go to a song. Yep. Um, this is from a musical that is coming to Sydney, I believe, in late 2020. Um, there's not a lot of detail out about it yet because it is still about a year away. Uh, this is from Waitress the Musical, and the song is called She Used to Be Mine. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM's Anthology. It's not simple to say And most days I don't recognize me That these shoes and this apron That place and its patrons Have taken more than I gave them It's not easy to know I'm not anything I used to be all of It's true, I was never attention sweet center. I still remember that girl. She's imperfect, but she tries. She is good, but she lies. She is hard. It's her. 
That was She Used to Be Mine from the musical Waitress here on 106.9 Tune FM's Anthology. And we're about to start our countdown of the top 20 movies of the decade here with me and Ben. Um, well, should we jump straight into it? This uh, yeah. carefully curated list of the 20 best movies of the decade. Absolutely. Let's launch straight into it. Well, we will start with number 20, which we have voted to be Pixar's Inside Out, which came out in 2015, directed by Pete Docter, who is a Pixar stalwart and featuring uh, such a wonderful cast as Amy Poehler, Phyllis Smith, uh, Richard Kind, Lewis Black, and Bill Hader, as well as Mindy Kaling as well, as you remember yeah. from The Office. It was a really touching film, um, really well put together by Pixar. Uh, I, I love the concept right from the start. I thought that it was a brilliant concept. It ended up winning the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Um, and my goodness, it was beautifully animated, beautifully written, beautifully put together. There was not much I really could complain about. No, I think that's going to be a recurring theme with these movies, that they there's not really much you can complain well, about. Them. Well, there's the best. They're, they're, they're meant to be the best. Mm. Um, for those who haven't seen Inside Out, it follows the uh, personified emotions of uh, a young early teenage girl who uh, go on a, a journey to save her from uh, the the terrible emotions that come with um, growing up and it, it focuses on joy, anger, fear, sadness and disgust to her all, all characters and uh, my word it's, it's brilliant it's very well done mm. I at the time said it was probably Pixar's best since Up that's a bold claim well, it was, a, there was only justified too. There was only six years between Up and Inside Out, but oh, that's true, I guess. Um, still, very, very good film. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it when I saw it in the cinemas at the time. It made me cry. It made me laugh, and um, it's it's among Pixar's best films in my in my books. Fair enough. So it finds its way. It managed to sneak in after long deliberation. As we said, we had a number of films vying for these last kind of yeah, three spots. It edged out quite a few. So it did edge out quite a few. But Inside Out is number 20 in our uh, top 20 films of the decade. Yes. Ben. Yes, moving on to number 19, we, have, uh, we did decide to go with another animated film. Uh, a film that was rather widely praised for its innovative use of anima use of animation, and that was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Of yes. course, that was the uh, film that was released uh, way back in, I say way back when, it was last year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> last year, uh, featuring essentially a wide variety of different Spider-Men from different universes or different um, dimensions, I guess. Um, and it it was very good. It, it, it was very... Uh, well put together. Like I said, the animation is tremendous. Um, it was the first non-Disney and non or non-Pixar film to win the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature since Rango back in 2011. 
um, and the first non-Disney, non-Pixar film since Happy Feet to win that award when a Disney or Pixar film was also nominated. Um, certainly got a lot of uh, positive reception, it entered meme culture fairly quickly, and a sequel is set to be released in 2022. Ooh, I I can see why. I'm a little bit worried about it because I did watch uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse when it was in cinemas and I was a big, big fan. Um, mm. I've been a Marvel Comics fan since I was a kid, so I, I really did appreciate what they did with Into the Spider-Verse and I'm a little worried, honestly, that um, they'll they'll sell out a little bit by giving it sequels and turning it into, a, into more than just the brilliant standalone film that it was. But maybe... <laughs> Deadpool. If it's... Well, if it's... If it's that awful, then uh, if the sequels are awful, then I can just forget they exist, I'm sure, because this one was quite brilliant. That's true. Um, And I will mention as well that it was the screenplay and a lot of the production was done by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, Mm. who are behind uh, such other animated films which have had accolades such as Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and the Lego movie, as well as I believe they had a a part in the 21 Jump Street series, the new one featuring Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. So they've excuse um, me. Yes, I believe you're right. So they've they've really come to the fore of of cinema at the, cinema at the moment, and I, I really do think this one was their crowning jewel after um after putting together some pretty good stuff, particularly with the Lego Movie series. I thought that was um an idea that had the potential to go either very wrong or very well, and I think what they did with it was quite interesting and fun. Um, and I I think this is their crowning jewel that they've they've put together an animated film that was very worthy of the accolades it received. Cool. There we go. Well, that's number 19. We're rolling through this list very quickly, so take note, James. You might learn something. <laughs> wow, that's a bit of a bit, bit of, of a shot at one of our other very successful shows here on Tune FM. Bit of bit of salt, bit of salt. Um, the we're going to move right on to number 18 uh, on our list which I did mention last week uh, in my review, and, and I mentioned that I really admired what was done with this film. It is Jordan Peele's Get Out from 2017. I um, will go on record as saying I wasn't a huge... I didn't like this film very much, but I can see and appreciate that it was put together very well. Well, what I really liked about it is that it tried to bring something new to the horror genre, which has... We do have other horror films, actually, uh, a little bit higher on the list, but... Um, what it did was took horror and twisted it and turned it into something different, which is a very interesting thing to be able to do because anybody can say, I want to make an action film and you've straight away got things that you would do that come to your mind. Yeah. That you, you straight away got an idea of what your main character is going to look like, what you what kind of things you're going to do in terms of cinematography or fight scenes. You, you get a very easy idea, but Jordan Peele... I think to an extent in both of his major films so far, but particularly Get Out, um, did something different and went away from the conventions, even to the extent that people argue that it's not really horror. And to an extent, I agree with them. That's I am one of those people. I, I would very much, I am very much of the belief that it is a thriller film. Mm, I can see horror elements, but that's what's so wonderful about it is that it, it's a film that kind of defies genre. If you don't know what yeah. Get Out is about, it... Uh, there's a, there's a real, there's young African American man in a relationship with a white girl is going to meet his um, his girlfriend's family, and uh, things start to get a little bit creepy. Um, mm. There's some strange things going on, and it turns into a little bit of a um, a, a bit of a psychological thriller 
uh, with all of these yeah, strange the more, things the going more on. The more I think about it, I can't. I personally cannot justify calling it a horror film. Yeah. Well, there's there's horror elements in terms of the way things are presented and the True. way it's um, structured, but it's not an out-and-out horror film. It's bothering me right now because the page I've got calls it a horror film, and I, do, I don't think that's quite accurate. accurate to. But that's, that's, that's a sign that they've tried to do something different. And obviously um, a huge rap to Jordan Peele, this being his directorial debut. Oh, yeah, and it, was, it earned, uh, let me see, two Oscar nominations. It won um, an Oscar, didn't it? I don't think it... Oh, I thought oh. it got Best Original Screenplay. Uh, it was nominated for... F- oh, no, here we go. At the 90th Academy Awards, it was nominated for four awards. My uh, my apologies. I was looking at the Golden Globe nominations, not the Oscars. Um, and it did win. It did win for Best Original Screenplay. Yeah, and I, I like when you think of the nominations of that year, I think that's pretty, it's pretty, pretty fair, fair enough. Daniel Kaluuya's performance as well. Was yes, stunning. Daniel Kaluuya was uh, did give a good performance in, and so did um, I thought the performance from um, oh the 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 female lead I can't remember the name. Sorry. Alison Williams. Yeah, thank you, Alison Williams. Um, she did a very good job as well for her character. Yeah. So and look, I must say, obviously, it's not uh, it's not a feel a personal favorite of mine, but I do I can appreciate that it was a very very good film, and um, I think it justify it earns its place on this list. Absolutely. Well, we might keep it rolling along onto move number on, 17. On. We're going to get the first five out of the way in this little talk break. So number 17, Ben. Number 17 is a film that I originally didn't think would make it onto this list, but it did um, after discussions and sort of comparing it to others. And that is the 2017 superhero film Logan, of course, starring Australia's own Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Um it was, I guess, I'd say it's a departure from the usual tone of the X-Men film series. Oh, a very big departure. Um, um, I certainly uh, enjoyed it. Um, it was a box office success, um, raking in $619 million off of a approximately $127 million budget, so that's obviously good numbers. Um, it became the fourth highest grossing R-rated film of all time and was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars, becoming the first live-action superhero film ever to be nominated for screenwriting. Um, it obviously did very, very well. Good reception. Uh, I think all the acting performances were pretty spectacular, especially, obviously, uh, Mr. Jackman himself and Patrick Stewart, who never gives a bad performance. Um, and I think it was a very, very positive superhero film overall. Um, a special mention to director James Mangold as well, who's really come to the, the fore as well. Um, he was known for a few things. He was a little bit up and down before Logan, including he'd done the previous... Um, Wolverine standalone film, which received very mixed reviews, um, but another of, a number of other films that had some level of success, including Kate and Leopold and Three Ten to Yuma and Night and Day. Um, he's this year done Ford v Ferrari, which I did uh, review and find quite good. Um, but what he really did with Logan that I really liked was he he saw the appeal of an R-rated Wolverine film, which was something that. Plenty of fans had complained about the um, the X Men series is that Wolverine's character was not being captured in the PG rating of the films, um, and that there was it was not really a, a justified um, de- it was not really a justified departure from the comic book characters that they all loved, and so an R rated Wolverine film had been talked about for a long time, and what he did wonderfully was took that and. Um, added stuff from his own repertoire, including elements of westerns and that sort of thing, and really created a wonderful R-rated Wolverine movie that was, um, to me, I, I, at the time, 
particularly enjoyed the fact that we were finally seeing a side of Wolverine that had kind of been hinted at, but never really expanded upon because of the PG rating in the previous X-Men films. Yeah. I loved the... uh, R-rated films are generally terrific. They yeah well they can take it that step further and that's that's wonderful to see particularly with a character like Wolverine. Um, well we might move on to number sixteen before we head to a song and take a bit of a break from talking about our countdown for a little while. So keep listening if you're interested in what else we've got so far. But we'll just quickly go to number sixteen, which is one that you might think at first glance is controversially low, and that is the 2012 movie. The Avengers, mm-hmm. directed by Joss Whedon and including an absolutely star-studded cast oh, of the likes God, yeah. of Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, Mark Ruffalo, Chris Hemsworth, Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy Renner, Tom Hiddleston, and many more like Samuel L. Jackson. So um, the first in, well, the four, now four Avengers movies and, of course, one of the installations in the now-renowned MCU. Mm. Um at the time, a massive cultural impact because it was the first kind of pulling together of the MCU. There'd been hints in the previous movies and kind of allusions to the other films that we kind of knew that Captain America and Thor and Iron Man were all going to be connected to an extent. Um, but this was the first film in which it was all pulled together and it was, at the time, such a big crossover, such a big budget um, film that had... It's such a big job to do, and Joss Whedon did a marvelous job, I have to say. Um, we hadn't really seen anything like this, and I, I, it's, it's difficult to kind of put in perspective because we've since seen Infinity War, Endgame, of which the, the scale is even bigger in magnitude. But it's, it's kind of difficult to look back on, on, on that perspective that this was, at the time, bringing together those six original Avengers was massive. It was a huge deal to have six superheroes as the titular characters in one film. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's no real arguing that it deserves to be on the list purely because of that cultural impact, that it was that that first big step in this MCU that we know and love today. Um, but generally, as a film as well, I do rate it. I do think it's uh, one of the stronger MCU films. Um, I do think that the performances are wonderful. I do think it uh, was a film that managed to develop Uh, a lot of the MCU characters without giving any of them disproportionate amounts of screen time, um, considering that there were six different superheroes and a villain and a bunch of supporting actors to develop as well. So um, overall, a worthy inclusion at number 16 on our list. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, that is the first five in our uh, top 20 films of the decade. We're going to come back uh, counting down from number 15 very shortly. Before that, though, We'll be talking about our movie reviews of some more, uh, of, of in a bit more detail, um, where we'll be talking about Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker and the Rocky Horror Picture Show right after this song, which is by Alan Silvestri, and this is the theme to The Avengers.
That was the soundtrack to The Avengers done by Alan Silvestri. You're listening to Anthology on 106.9 Tune FM, where we're about to do our weekly movie reviews. Ben is going to kick us off. He's doing a personal favorite in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes. And then I will be uh, reviewing or giving my thoughts after Ben did so last week on the new Star Wars film. So, Ben, why don't you get us underway? Thank you. Sorry, I just stifled the yawn that I was in the middle of um, uh, expelling. So um, I've recently picked Rocky Horror Picture Show when I um, realized that I wasn't going to be able to do Jumanji was I realized I had not yet done a single musical film. I mean, K through 12 was a technical, I mean, like a film that's adapted from a musical. And that's obviously a big part of theatre so I thought about which one I could do and I thought I absolutely refuse to do Cats no matter how much people may bribe or threaten me I am not touching that dumpster fire Mm -hmm. so I decided to go with my personal favourite a film that I've quite enjoyed ever since I first watched it when I was 11 Um, and that is Rocky Road Picture Show starring Richard O'Brien as Riff Raff um, Tim Curry who reprises his role from the Rocky Horror Show uh, as Dr. Frankenfurter Susan Sarandon um and a smattering of other, obviously, characters. I haven't given the full cast list, um, mainly because I can't remember them off the top of my head, so my apologies. Um, most of you will be, or most people who follow theatre will be aware of the storyline of the Rocky Road Picture Show. Uh, Brad and Janet um, both get stranded. They end up uh, walking to a castle for help. They discover that the castle is being run by the trans, um, the transvestite from transsexual Transylvania Dr. Frankenfurter and his servants and other uh, Transylvanian uh, people Um, it is a very cult like film it's a very silly film obviously I think Tim Curry is the breakout star by far and away he gives the best performance and it is his character that keeps us entertained Uh, Meatloaf has a role as the rock star Eddie a pizza delivery boy who gets brutally murdered by Frankenfurter it's a film that Upon its release was fairly panned and then it quickly developed a cult following and now to this day is one of the more popular movie musicals of all time. It obviously has some terrific songs, Sweet Transvestite, Time Warp, um, Rose Tint My World, Eddie's Teddy, you know, Sword of Damocles, most of the famous songs that you are aware of from the musical. Um, it has terrific effects, obviously, for 1975 when it was released. It has um, terrific cinematography, I think, and it doesn't take itself too seriously, which I think is important for a movie like this. Um, like I said, I give the breakout performance to uh, Tim Curry. I think the acting is pretty spectacular and spot on. Um, there are a little... I mean, obviously, it's a movie that you can't take too seriously, otherwise you probably won't enjoy it. But for what it is, I think it is a very faithful representation of Richard O'Brien's Rocky Horror Show screenplay, and I think it is a very entertaining way to spend an hour and a half. Um, personal enjoyment factor, I give an 8 out of 10. Music, I give a 9. Cinematography, I give a 6. Um, acting, I'll give a 7. And the storyline, I will give a 6 as well. All in all, a very, very entertaining film. One of my personal favourites for a long time, but that might just be because Tim Curry in drag is more or less one of my icons. So, uh, terrific film. I thoroughly recommend that you go and review it, If uh, you go and watch it, sorry, if you haven't yet. Um, and it is certainly a good way to get yourself introduced to the world of films and musicals. Um, other films that came out, or the other film that came out around that time that a lot of people draw comparisons to is Little Shop of Horrors, another um, film adapted from a musical. Um, 
that stars Rick Moranis as and Martin Sheen uh, as two of the characters, but won't go into that too much. It is a good uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, great film. Thoroughly recommend you go and give it a watch. And this is something I've been very happy to review and just as a little stopgap until Jumanji next week. But good film, um, thoroughly recommend, and I think most criticism of the film is not entirely unjustified, but I think you do have to remember that the film isn't set out to be a tremendous, serious, gritty blockbuster. And for that, I commend it, and I think it's a very timeless film, and I think it will certainly be one that is still discussed, watched, and dissected for another 25 years to come. And where are you going to put it on your uh, your scale of movies that you've, you've reviewed so far? Well, it's interesting because obviously number one is Imaginarium. Number two is Rise of Skywalker. Excuse me. Number three is Kingsman. Number four is um, 300, 5K through 12, and then six, Tarzan and Jane. I'm going to slot this right about... I'm going to put it above 300 but below... Um, Kingsman. So I'm going to put it in number four. I think that's a fair place for it. Very good. So an, a nice a middle of the middle of the table. It's good to see that uh, your the top of your uh, ranking is starting to grow with films that you actually enjoyed as well. Mm. I think it's a um. And look, this is admittedly um. I d- my ranking list. I generally um am aware that it's going to potentially be uh different to a lot of what a lot of people believe. Uh, what a lot of people would have as theirs, but. The Rock Hero Picture Show is one of my favourites, but it's a film that I think is very, very good. Um, I think it has definitely earned its status as a cult movie, which is never going to have as much uh, positive reception or as much media attention necessarily as mainstream blockbusters. And for that, for what it's worth, it's a very, very good film. Wonderful. Well, I know Ben's been looking forward to this. Oh, good God. Um... I did go and see Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, um, and I'd like to put out there that up until this point, just so that you get some background on um, the attitude that I took into this film, I have been a big Star Wars fan since I was about five or six years old, very, very young. My dad was a fan of the original trilogy. He went to see uh, a lot of those when they came out in cinemas, um, and so he brought me up with the original trilogy, the prequels were coming out when I was very young and first starting to get into Star Wars as well. So um, initially when Disney took over the the franchise and it was announced that there was another trilogy as well as all the spin-offs that we've had as well, I was stoked. I was very, very excited. Um, but so far I've found, uh, without going too much into the spin-offs because they're a separate issue entirely, this core sequel trilogy has been a letdown. Um, The Force Awakens I found average and I had hoped um, after seeing it that I would be able to forgive it a lot because I thought it would be a weaker chapter in a good trilogy. Um, When The Last Jedi came out, uh, the more I watched it, the more I grew to hate it. And um, so up until this point, I've really found this trilogy to be a, a bit of a letdown. So I came in expecting potentially to be let down but also hoping and really praying that this final chapter in the trilogy would pull things together and i would at least be able to salvage some enjoyment out of this what is essentially the first star wars uh mainstream trilogy that i've been uh old enough to go and watch all three of in cinemas um and i have to say this is not entirely the fault of this film because it did have a lot of work to do. As I said, the first two films of this trilogy were 
a letdown. But I found by the end of the first act of the film, I had already made up my mind that I was rather disappointed. Um, the first act of the film is very, very crowded with a lot of exposition, a lot of uh, forced plot points that re- are really trying to get the momentum rolling on this this final chapter in this saga. And that, as I said, that's not entirely the film's fault because there was a lot of things left unanswered or things that J.J. Uh, Abrams, the director, didn't really want that were done in Rian Johnson's previous um, episode that had to be resolved before the real plot of uh, Rise of Skywalker could get momentum. But the problem that I found was that there was so much exposition and so much that Abrams wanted to tell us in this first third to half of the movie that it all overlapped onto one another and there was actually not a lot of thought put into the moments. It was breaking one of the first rules of storytelling, which is show, don't tell. It didn't allow the audience to... Uh, work out what was going on for themselves. It didn't show the audience what was going on and guide them through this journey to really immerse us and make us feel like we're there with Ray and or there with Finn or there with Poe. It was telling us what was going on. Um, even plot points being explicitly said by characters or very, very convenient ways out of situations that um, were, were done purely because the plot demanded that they stop wasting time on that and move on. Um, which which gave it some really, really rushed pacing um, and it made it very hard to get into for a while. By the end of it, there were a few moments that I really did enjoy. I have to say the there are two main kind of lightsaber duel scenes in the film. I found that both of them could be considered the best lightsaber duels probably in all nine films. Um, the way they were shot the cinematography in those the choreography of it i found was a healthy middle between uh, being more exciting than the slightly undertrained saber work of the original trilogy um, while not being the flamboyant over-the-top nonsense that was um, that was done by george lucas in the prequels um, it was it was a, a couple of brilliant lightsaber duels that i found really interesting film-wise as well there are also some sequences um, dealing particularly with the original cast um, who were returning, including uh, obviously Carrie Fisher uh, and uh, Anthony Daniels as Chewbacca. Um, all of those, um, of course, the return of Billy D. Williams, which, um, sorry, did I just say Anthony Daniels as Chewbacca? You did. I'm I was about so to say that Anthony was Daniels as C-3PO. I'm... I'm a little bit tired, in case you can't tell. Uh, of course, yeah, as, as, Ben mentioned, as Ben mentioned um, last week, the returns of Billy D. Williams as Lando and Ian McDiarmid as uh, Emperor Palpatine. I, th- I thought that elements dealing with those characters uh, that we, we knew and loved were, were good. Um, but by the end, I, I have come to kind of agree with a lot of what this film has copped in terms of criticism. I did find it rather unimaginative and derivative, particularly in moments where um, J.J. Abrams resorted to kind of doing the same thing that he did with The Force Awakens, where a lot of that plot was drawn directly from A New Hope. Um, There were moments in this plot as well that were very much drawn directly from Return of the Jedi, uh, which was rather disappointing to see, considering that you would have thought that J.J. Abrams might have learned that Star Wars fans didn't really appreciate that the first time. Um, 
and I do agree that it was it was very rushed. But as, as I said, particularly the first half of the movie when um, Abrams was really trying to catch it up and make sure he had his slate cleaned and ready to go for what he wanted to tell as this this uh, this new Star Wars story. There were a lot of things that were just very very rushed um, to the point that it became impossible to become engaged with the characters. But I also I want to finish this review by kind of talking about the trilogy as a whole and what I found good and what I found disappointing about it as a Star Wars fan. Um, in terms of the characters, I've actually found it's kind of flipped on its head from when I first went into that cinema to watch The Force Awakens. I found Rey to be quite a, an uninteresting character in uh, Episode Seven. I found, as, as many people have described her, I thought she was a bit of a Mary Sue. She didn't really, um, she wasn't a flawed character. She wasn't an interesting character. She was just the Jedi. Um, but I really think that she's become probably the most interesting of the uh, primary three in this new trilogy. She's really come into her own. I think The Rise of Skywalker develops that even further. And we find that she's a flawed character, a troubled character, and a very, very interesting character. I do think that she was a, a quality character who was very well written. And the criticism from The Force Awakens, while it was justified for that film, has um, been refuted it's been proven wrong at this point um she was probably the most interesting character i have grown to love poe dameron i think that a little bit more development of his character earlier in the trilogy might have gone a long way but i did come to love him as a character a little bit i did like that i did think that he was a character that really worked with the dynamic that they had but the one character that i of, of the main three as you might have guessed that i've really not liked is finn and I've felt that his character arc has not really developed at all uh, since his moment in The Force Awakens, very early on in The Force Awakens, where he, um, where he ethically and instinctively decides not to be a stormtrooper anymore, um, that since then his character has not changed or developed at all. I've been rather disappointed in um, not so much John Boyega's performances as the way the character's been written. And I've have found him rather uninteresting and by the end of the rise of skywalker i was no longer i didn't really care what was going on with him in the the final moments i wanted to know what was going on with poe and ray um the primary villain kylo ren um i think there was a definite improvement in the character in the rise of skywalker i definitely think that he becomes a more enjoyable um sort of character in general i still do think that um, particularly in the earlier films, he was not a very well-made character. And I think that um, a lot of the conclusion that his character gets without spoiling anything was a little unjustified for that reason, that the character didn't develop properly and there were things that happened that just didn't really quite sit well with me. And the question that's on everyone's lips, of course, about The Rise of Skywalker, which is the last thing I'll address, um, Emperor Palpatine, I do disagree with Ben. I do think that in this instance, um, it was not done very well. I don't think that the return of Emperor Palpatine was explained very well um, or justified very well. And I think there's a lot of questions to answer about um, if this is canon, then why was he, um, why was none of this hinted at or addressed in previous episodes? Or, and there's, it does seem like a cop-out 
for a villain for a movie that was looking for a new villain um and i think it was it was disappointing which is again probably the fault of the last jedi who killed where they killed off snoke but it did seem like very much a cop-out um to to bring palpatine back into it with uh, just a little bit of a loophole that we actually never really technically saw him die um the so in conclusion i do think that this trilogy really suffered for the fact that they gave three different directors the jobs in the first place um of course colin trevorrow did eventually quit from the rise of skywalker and was replaced by jj abrams for his second of the trilogy but um i think giving the projects as individual projects to three different directors really killed bad form it really really killed the trilogy because there was very little um there was there was an obvious lack of communication between directors um towards what they wanted to achieve telling a story over the course of three movies and by the end of it um the rise of skywalker which i do think had the potential to be one of the stronger uh installments uh was killed by the efforts that it had to make to undo what jj abrams didn't like about the last jedi um so overall the trilogy for me is a failure i think it's been um very very disappointing indeed there's been good moments but i am writing off the rise of skywalker as an average film um probably made below average by the fact that it had so much exposition to get through in such a short period of time which killed its pacing um in a bad trilogy so that does make it i'd say it's 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 debatable whether the force awakens or the rise of skywalker is the best of this um trilogy and i do put it fifth in my uh movie list of all time it does uh, my movie list of these uh, reviews it does beat out charlie's angels and the adams family but sits below ford versus ferrari all right well that's our movie reviews when we come back we're going to be talking about uh we're going to keep going in our countdown of the top 20 films of the decade. We're going to be counting down from number 15 to number 11 right after we hear another wonderful song here on 106.9 Tune FM.
That was the Star Wars theme by John Williams, of course, here on 106.9 Tune FM's Anthology. We're going to continue our countdown now. We're up to number 15 on the top 20 films of the decade. Ben is going to kick us off. So number 15 is a Disney film, a very famous and influential Disney film. It is 2013's Frozen. Absolutely. Starring Adina Menzel as, I guess, the... I guess you could say she's the lead, but there's an argument to be made about that. Um, It was a tremendous film. Uh, It became one of Disney's biggest, uh, I guess, hits in terms of animated films. Very, very popular. The songs were played everywhere everywhere and, and and i'll repeat it because i did say that this when i reviewed frozen 2 i don't like frozen songs but that's not because i think they're bad songs it's because my goodness they were played over and over again i can't stand them any longer no i agree and but that is a sign of the cultural impact that it had um and my word did it have a cultural impact um i don't think we'd ever have seen coming that Olaf the snowman probably sells as many toys as Mickey Mouse does at this point. Mm. But um, yeah, Frozen, massive, massive uh, film inspired by Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, The Snow Queen. Um, so wonderful to see uh, Disney continuing to make films based off fairy tales because that's what I do love about them. Also, Fantastic performances by Kristen Bell, Jonathan Groff, and Josh Gad. Yeah, Josh Gad did have a good one. I love Josh Gad so much. I'm a big fan of the Book of Mormon, so big fan of uh, Elder Cunningham in in that. Uh, Josh Gad is excellent. And, of course, I I will say I didn't like this movie so much, and it doesn't make our list, so I am allowed to mention it. Um, Beauty and the Beast, Mm. one of the highlights for me, was Josh Gad's performance as LeFou. So, yeah, um, um, for any of you Beauty and the Beast fans, sorry, you won't be seeing that on this list. Unfortunately, it's not on the list. Because it doesn't deserve to be there. Um, yeah, I, I didn't like it as an adaptation, but I did like Josh Gad's performance in yeah. that film as well. So um, Josh Gad is, is close to all of our hearts, and uh, Frozen comes in at number 15, the number 15 film of the decade in our books. Um, all right, I suppose... We can move on to number 14. Oh, if you must, if we must, if you insist. Which is a a personal favourite of mine, actually. I've loved this film for quite some time. It's another film from 2013, directed by the wonderful Martin Scorsese, Mm. and it is The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Jonah Hill and Margot Robbie and Matthew McConaughey. Um, and it was a controversial, but um, it, was going to be controversial. it was a very controversial, but wonderful film. I'm telling you, I've rated films. They're always the best. Well, it's it's interesting to take a, on a biographical black comedy yeah. because it's and I suppose there was no um, no other way to do Jordan Belfort's life because my goodness, the man was controversial. Mm. I mean. There's um there's no other real way to put it other than if you if you take into account um, the things that that man did. But Leonardo DiCaprio's performance was wonderful. This was of course when he was still in the build-up to trying to win a Best Actor um, Oscar, um, and he was nominated for this performance. Admittedly, um, he had no chance of winning that year, which was a real shame. That was a yeah, it was it was a bit of a shame. But it is a wonderful performance if you haven't Certainly. seen The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, fair content warning because there is a lot of swearing and a lot of drug use and a lot of sexual profanity and a lot of sex oh yeah everything um 
it set a um, it was it was also controversial actually at the time because it used animals um, in its production. They used animals including a chimpanzee, a lion, a snake, a fish, and dogs. Um, and a partridge in a pear tree. It um, it it did. It did cause a little bit of controversy it over that. It was always going to. Any film that uses animals is always going to cop some Cop stick. a bit of flack. But I will say I do love The Wolf of Wall Street. It is a personal favorite. Um, if you think that you're down for the film that sets the Guinness World Record for the most instances of swearing in a film. It was over 900, wasn't it? Oh, no, it, was, it wasn't that high. It was several times a minute. Let's yeah. put it that way. But um, it's, it's a wonderful uh Wonderful film that was worthy of five nominations at the Academy Awards. Interestingly enough as well, Jordan Belfort was asked about Leonardo DiCaprio's portrayal of him and the historical accuracy of the movie. He said the only thing that stops it from being 100% historically accurate is that the actual events and the actual situations and things they go up to were worse than were depicted in the movie. So it certainly shows what a insane life that man was living at the time. Absolutely. And I will say this because Leonardo DiCaprio is probably one of my favourite actors, if not my favourite actor. Um, I do not think that man has ever had a bad performance, and he certainly had a wonderful performance in this film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I was going to use, actually, his um, monologue uh, where he decides not to quit from The Office as a monologue for an audition. Um, Mm. It's quite... It's it's so good that it it makes a very good theatrical monologue as well. Yeah, of course. Um, it's, It's a wonderful film, and Martin Scorsese makes the list at number 14 with The Wolf of Wall Street. Ben. Yes. Lucky number 13. I know you're going to enjoy this one as well. It is the 2012 film uh, brought to you by the wonderful, wonderful man that is Christopher Nolan, mm. topping the box or topping one billion just at the box office, The Dark Knight Rises. You know I love me some Christopher Nolan. Oh, yes. Um, a man who thoroughly deserves his multiple places on this list. He does uh-huh. have Little multiple. Tease. Yeah. Little tease for later. Starring, obviously, um, Christian Bale as Batman, Michael Caine, Gary Oldman, Anne Hathaway, Tom Hardy, Marion Cotillard, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Morgan Freeman. Um, obviously, it is the sequel and final trilogy in the Dark Knight trilogy, the sequel to The Dark Knight 2008. Unfortunately, this film does not um, feature Heath Ledger for tragic and well, no, well-established reasons. Still a very, very fitting and satisfying finale to the trilogy um, and just another feather in Christopher Nolan's well-endowed cap. Mm, it was a beautiful conclusion to it as well because I know that Nolan was hesitant about um, coming back to do a third film, um, really didn't want to. But um, there was actually the storyline was suggested by it was developed by his brother, uh, which is why he agreed to come back. And it's a very satisfying conclusion. I certainly, I certainly would rate The Dark Knight above it in terms of um, the trilogy. I think that it's. It's the second best film in the trilogy. Obviously, The Dark Knight doesn't make the list being in the 2000s. Yes, of course. But um, it, it is a satisfying ending. And I will say the performance of Tom Hardy Ooh. is wonderful. Yeah. I love that man. Tom Hardy is excellent. Um, and I think he plays a wonderful adaptation of Bane that um, really will be iconic as well. I think everybody... It, it's kind of brought a, a few Batman characters and a few specific adaptations of Batman characters into the mainstream um, that weren't really before, like Bane, like Scarecrow, like uh, Ra's al Ghul, that trilogy. So it's um, it's wonderful to see, and um, I think a very worthy inclusion in our in our list as well. 
I love Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. It's probably they're probably my favorite superhero movies of all time. Unsurprisingly, to anyone who knows me and knows how much I love Christopher Nolan. Oh yeah. Um. So yeah, wonderful performances all across the board, and a a very wonderful storyline as well that really continues uh, Nolan's darker and more real take on um, the Batman legend. Right. Got a couple more to get through. So we'll move on to number 12. And uh, number 12 is a little bit of a reboot of a series that Australians will know and be very fond of. Uh, The 2015 reboot, Mad Max Fury Road. My goodness, this made an absolute splash. And it made a splash at the Academy Awards too. Um, Yeah, sweeping up when it wasn't really expected to. Yeah, and it, it deservedly did. I... I was always I, I liked the original Mad Max movies, but one thing that always got me was that every other kid at my school, every other a boy at my school, loved the Mad Max movies, and I never quite got into them as much as they did. Mm. But Fury Road, I were I love. It's a great movie. Um, it's a it really, really is. really wonderful reboot. Um, really brings a more modern, uh, a more modern filmic take on the Mad Max series. Tom Hardy's wonderful. Charlize Theron in it is brilliant. Um, And also shout out to Nicholas Holt, who I thought up until that had dropped off the face of the earth. Yeah. But he he had a wonderful uh, role in that film that was so superbly portrayed. I did not see that coming from him. but yeah, it did sweep up at the Academy Awards. It received 10 nominations, winning six, which is just absolutely, Pretty I mean, at the time, unexpected, um, but absolutely spectacular. Ben, take over for a second. I need to cough. I was about to say, Jake appears to be struggling somewhat. Um, a, a timely reminder of how bad the air quality currently is in most of New South Wales, Armadale it's especially. Com- it's coming in through the air conditioning. Um, yeah, I've noticed that. I've been struggling a bit too. So um, we'll sort of rush through it just because we need to get to another song and we both need some water <laughs> immediately. Um, mm. But no, um, obviously Mad Max was a terrific, I guess, reboot of a franchise. I'm generally not a big fan of reboots, but this one was certainly the exception to my little rule there. Um, it was certainly, I think, deserving of the Academy Awards that it won and a nice little shout-out for Australia. So I was a fan. I thought it was a good film. It is very much deserving of its place in the higher level of the bottom half of our list. All right. Well, we might finish off the bottom half of our list just before we go for a water break. Yes, yeah, so I will. Um, we'll launch straight into it. Uh, number 11 is a film that I particularly enjoyed. Um, I can't really say why. It was just a film that I was very much drawn to by... Um, I guess, the story and the idea of it. So it is a 2016 biographical war drama directed by Mel Gibson, which will give it away for most people, Hacksaw Ridge, who, uh, which starred, obviously, Andrew Garfield, Sam Worthington, who a lot of people will know from, obviously, um, Avatar. Uh, also stars Luke Bracey, Teresa Palmer, Hugo Weaving, who is amazing, Rachel Griffiths, and Vince Vaughn. It was, again, it received six Oscar nominations. Um, It won two, and it has been lauded for its acting, for its gritty realism, and for its historical accuracy. Um, Now, it's obviously a bit of controversy attached to Mel Gibson as a person because of his past, which we won't really go into, but it focuses on Desmond Doss, who is a World War II pacifist combat medic 
who, as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, refused to carry or use a weapon or firearm of any kind. Very interesting story, and I think that the, uh, that it was adapted exceptionally well. A very good film, and again, certainly deserving of a middle-of-the-range spot on our best list of 2010s. I think it's wonderful as well to see Mel Gibson in terms of his work. Um, he's known for that gritty realism, being unafraid to show... Um, some pretty gritty stuff in terms of like the Passion of the Christ and Braveheart. Um, so I think that taking on a World War II drama was um, a wonderful move for him in terms mm. of his career. And my, he did it well. Um, Hacksaw Ridge was a wonderful, wonderful film. Um, and it's it's the exception to one of my rules. I generally don't like war films that simply show... Um, I don't want to say it's gratuitous because war is bloody. That's the nature of it. But um, there tends to be just a trend of films that think that they're good or doing something new because they're showing war and it's it's confronting and it's gritty and it's gory. Yeah. And um, that got a little bit tiresome to me, uh, which I'll talk about again a little bit later with another war film that does make the list that is that um, actually breaks that trend. But... Um, I did. I do think Hacksaw Ridge is one of the exceptions to my rule there in terms of I do like the fact that it's very realist uh, and it's it's very confronting. All right, well, we might get some water. Yes, I think that's a good idea. The smoke is just absolutely ridiculous. So we're going to come right back. We're going to be getting into the top 10 after this song break. It's time for another movie theme. You're, you're listening to Anthology on 106.9 Tune FM.
That was the Batman theme here on 106.9 Tune FM. Ben was enjoying it. <laughs> Sorry, choking there. I'm all right now. We're going to continue our countdown to the top 20 films of the decade, and we're into the top 10. Let's do it! We're going to get right that was, into... That was much more aggressive than it was supposed to be. Yeah, get right into number 10 then. Let's launch into the top half of our best films of this decade. And may I say, I am so bloody relieved we decided to do top 20, not top 10, because that would have made this impossible. Oh, it would be absolutely impossible. And I know that you're excited for number 10. I am, very much so. I will make no bones about it. It was my favourite film of 2017. And because I'm such a fan of the source material and the story itself, it is a film that... I massively fanboy over it. Not not only was it the first film I went and saw twice in theatre, I actually saw it five times in cinemas. Um, I thought it was brilliant. I thought the main I thought the the villain's actor was done very very well. I thought it was brilliant. I can't heap enough praise on the film. One of my favourites of all time. So hit us with it. It is it. Oh God. And. While I find that it maybe lags behind some of the rest of the top 10 in terms of critical acclaim, I do definitely agree with its inclusion in the top 10 in terms of cultural impact. It was the highest grossing horror film of all time at the time of its release. Yeah. Uh, it was the fifth highest grossing R-rated film of all time, uh, and it was, it was nominated for the Critics' Cho- Choice Movie Award for Best Sci-Fi Horror Movie. Uh, it won... Plenty of awards for best acting ensemble, bogey awards, everything. It was, it was, and it has a sequel now as well. It does have a sequel. Well, in a way, I don't consider it a sequel. I consider it the second part of a story. In the same way, I don't consider Avengers Endgame, for instance, to be a sequel to Infinity War. I think of them both as two parts to a whole story. Um, And I will say, uh, a lot of people thought the second film was slightly weaker than the first one. I personally disagree, but I also know that the second one did not receive anywhere near the level of acclaim and cultural influence that the first one had. I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful adaptation. I think it takes the source material. I think it's a more faithful adaptation of the source material than the 1990 miniseries. Um, and I think that Bill Skarsgård just oh, has one of the best performances I've seen in a film as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. The film took a more darker, horror-focused uh turn rather than the 1990 miniseries which was more comedic um obviously tim curry was tremendous in that role but for me the one and only pennywise will be bill skarsgård i can't look and this is for me i maybe it sounds like i'm being a bit too lavish on this film especially compared to obviously i won't be this excited about some of the other films in the top 10 but this for me as a massive stephen king fan as a massive it fan this movie was everything i wanted it to be and more and i am so so pleased that um, we managed to make room for it in our top 10 of our top 20 list. Well, it was it had a massive cultural impact as well. I do find it probably one of the most rewatchable horror movies. I find horror movies generally tend to be quite vapid and shallow, but I found it was it was it was a very good adaptation. Yeah, um, it was. It was very very well done, and I do agree with you about Bill Skarsgård's performance as well. Um, quite astonishing, actually. Uh, the way he managed to bring something new to that character that we hadn't quite seen, maybe not necessarily hadn't seen at all, but something that we definitely hadn't seen on the screen. No. Um, so wonderful inclusion there. Uh, we'll move on then to number yes. nine. Number nine, and for number nine, for number nine, um, sorry, we just thought we heard noise. Uh, number nine, um, it 
Don't worry about it. Sorry. Continue. Num- it's just the thing being silly. Yeah. Number nine. Sorry, I've got studio noises going on. Apologies. Um, number nine is a film that may, for some people, be a little bit low on our list. I know that it was very highly acclaimed. It was a Best Picture winner. So for its for a Best Picture film to be so low is a little bit unusual. But I have to say, I don't think it is as high as I think a lot of people expect it to be but it was still a tremendous film and it's way back to the start of the decade way back in 2010 it is the king's speech obviously based on um king george the sixth who hired um lionel logue as an australian speech therapist to cope with his famous stammer um it was a good film and i do think it certainly deserved best picture Actually, no, no, I don't. That was more just to wind you up because of what it went up against. Um, it was a film. More that, on that later. Yes, more on that later. Um, that was I did. I'm like I enjoyed. It. I thought it was a very good film. I just don't think it was as high as a lot of people placed it in their decade retrospectives. And I mean, putting together Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush. Ooh, and that, look, Colin Firth, he deserved Best Actor that year. Oh, absolutely. I will say that, that King Speech was definitely the second best film that year, but Colin Firth's performance was spectacular. And Jeffrey Rush was certainly no um, no slouch either. One of the funniest scenes I've seen in a like a such a serious dramatical film was um, obviously the scene where King George the Sixth goes on a swearing rampage. That was just hilarious. Um, and I think that it is a very good film, and it's certainly a nice biographical film about a king. And obviously, as a big monarchist and a fan of the royal family, I found it very enjoyable. So, um, like I said, way back in the start of the decade, back in 2010, it was. A very pleasant way to spend a few hours in theatre, and I think it was overall a very, very exceptional film. There you go. Number nine is The King's Speech. As we continue to crawl up our top ten, we're getting very close to finding out what the best films of the decade were. Mm. We'll move on to number eight. And number eight is, I know, a personal favourite. We've talked a little bit about this series before, and you'll find out exactly what I think now, because I mentioned that we'd be talking about this later, number eight is Rogue One. Yes. Um, the spin-off of the Star Wars series, which uh, detailed the story of the rebels who managed to steal the Death Star plans from the Empire and um, as a result uh, set up the, the plot of the original Star Wars A mm. New Hope. Um, now, as I've said, I'm not really a fan for the most part of the new Star Wars films. But this was the one exception to the rule. I found it was spectacular. Real credit to director Gareth Edwards, who yeah. gave uh, Star Wars a different tone. I really found that it, it had the vibe of like a war film. Um, it had a much more uh, serious um, vibe than definitely it's the original trilogy. Mm. There was a much more real um, imminent threat of... Um, invasion and war and conflict and that sort of thing that was quite confronting and the performances of uh, Felicity Jones, Diego Luna particularly Australia's own Ben Mendelsohn yes. who was superb, absolutely superb and also shout out to Mads Mikkelsen mm-hmm. who I love as an actor and Donnie Yen whose yeah. character was I think everybody's personal favourite yeah I can't argue with that and, look, and I will say this came out when I was in year 12 I'm not making this up for a few weeks after it came out in cinemas all over my school, like on the playground at recess and lunch or whatever, you could hear people saying, I am one with the force, the force is with me. That was almost like a, a mantra that people took away from that film. I would say this is the 
I I often debate with myself on this. And times I will say it falls just short of Empire, and at times I will say it is the best Star Wars film ever made. So for me, I alternate between saying it's the best and number two of the eleven films that have been made. It blows every film that's come out this century completely out of the water. Oh, absolutely. And, and for me, it sits at three. I, I do rate um, Empire and A New Hope um, higher than Rogue One. But for me, this is it, it was absolutely brilliant. God, um, yeah. K2SO was the droid. Oh, what a wonderful performance that was. Absolutely. Alan Tudyk is yeah. so undervalued as a voice actor. Oh, God, yeah, he is. He, um, and look, and the, the, the thing I loved about it is it was a very big tonal shift from Star Wars. Obviously, you knew going in that most of the characters were going to die on account of the fact that they weren't in the original trilogy, so you sort of had to get rid of them. Um, but even the way that it was done and the way they made you sort of relate to and connect with the characters made it genuinely upsetting when they did die. Um, when K2SO died, when um, Cassius and... Um, Cassian, sorry, and uh, Jin, obviously they passed away. That was awful. Um, and the f- I will say it was a bit controversial because it resurrected um, Grand Moff Tarkin's uh, acting performance using um, CGI. That was the late Peter Cushing. And it, that was tremendous. I thought it was done very well. Yeah, I thought in that case it was done was very well. I was about to well. say the, the, um, the CGI of young Carrie Fisher as Leia was a little bit less well done, shall yeah, we say. Yeah, that was a little bit jarring at the end. But I, I think particularly given the scene that precedes that, I think we were able to forgive it because the scene that precedes that was a wonderful um, introduction to the Darth Vader that I think all Star Wars fans wanted to think existed yes. but hadn't quite seen on the screen. We saw a brutal, um, aggressive, and completely haunting version of Darth Vader in a wonderful, very short, but absolutely bone-chilling scene that got me out of my seat as a Star Wars fan. I was going to say, I remember watching it in the theatre. I, I, w- I will maintain that is the best scene in Star Wars history. And I realise that could be a bit controversial, but I firmly believe it mm, is... Luke be- versus Vader in Empire. No, I can't. So this thing, because this, Luke versus Vader in Empire was very, very good, but it was drawn out over a period of scenes and it was intercut with foot with scenes on Cloud okay, City. Okay, well, if you wanted specifics, you could say the um, Luke losing his hand... Yeah, even that. Even like I don't know, just something about just something about the environment, the lighting, the sound, especially the ambience, the and just the fact that it was only less than thirty seconds long, but it was bone chilling. It was such a it tremendously was, good scene. Well, it was a gorgeous scene. I'll agree. I'll agree with you on that. We should probably move yeah, on I was because we, say, could, we we got to stop could, gushing. We can't keep gushing. We over could gush Rogue over Rogue One all night. Um, let's move on to yes. where no, are we up to? Number seven. Number seven. Yes, indeed. And number seven is another relatively recent one, 2017. Um, it was obviously in contention for quite a lot of Oscars. It was the drama film produced and directed by Martin McDonough, starring Francis McDormand, who again an exceptional performance. Um, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, a woman who rents three billboards to call attention to her daughter's unsolved murder. Um, it starred Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell, who won an Oscar for his performance, and justifiably so. He is a tremendous actor. Abby Cornish, John Hawkes, and Peter Dinklage. As well as, did you mention Frances McDormand? Oh, yeah, I said her at the start. Oh, you did say yeah, her at the yeah, start. Yeah, I was going to yes. say, no, I'll just ignore the main character. <laughs> no, sure, it was, um, it was very, very well done. It received... Um, from memory, I believe it was six, but I'll double check. Okay, no, sorry, it was um, it was seven. It was nominated for seven uh, seven Oscars and 
won two. It's uh, Frances McDormand won for Best Actress and Sam Rockwell for Best Supporting Actor. It was one of 2017's highlights, I feel. Obviously not my favourite, Cough Cough It, but um, I do have to I cannot disagree with its impact and the quality of the film. The subject matter was very harrowing and confronting, which I'm always a fan of in film. And, and we I should always expect from Martin McDonough as yeah, well. Yeah, I was going to say, you, ha- you sort of have to expect that with, the, with his work. And um, I can't really say much more than that. I thought it was a very, very, very tremendous film. And it's certainly a film I would recommend that people go and watch. It's a film with a gorgeous aesthetic, a film yeah. with a gorgeous soundtrack. It was um, full of wonderful performances. And I love that Martin McDonough, and I'll say this a lot because I'm actually um, directing a play written by Martin McDonough next year. So I've been gushing over his work for the last few months. Um that he has this wonderful ability to contrast some really, really harrowing content, some really harrowing subject matter with some really fun kind of humor This that creates this really interesting feel where you, you're both confronted by what you're actually seeing and you're laughing at the jokes as well. And there's these, there's these moments like there's jokes, there's, there's jokes given in a suicide note, which is both at bold. the same time. It's very bold. <laughs> bold. And it's you have you at the same time have this urge to laugh at it, but this overriding emotion that it would be inappropriate to laugh at it. And it's um, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful in every sense. It's it's classic Martin McDonough, and I think it's probably uh, one of the crowning jewels of his filmic work. Definitely. I um yeah I certainly hope that whoever read that suicide note laughed at the joke because you certainly wouldn't you certainly wouldn't want to leave him anyway we're going to just leave that there oh. um we're going to leave that one right there um and I will say as well it was this is my show Ben and you will be fired <laughs> it was um it was yeah I was gonna say don't want to get demoted back to guest appearance um it had a surprisingly low budget for such a successful film and only had a fifteen million dollar budget yeah and well it's it's amazing what can be achieved with that though because mm. you wouldn't have guessed it. Um, given the the aesthetic quality of it, I mean, it's like the 2017 film It, number ten on the list. It uh, it had a budget more than twice that size, so it does show exactly that uh, that you can still make a tremendous piece of art and a tremendous film with a low budget. Mm, absolutely. Well, we should um, carry on. So that is mm. number seven on our list: three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, and we'll move on to number six before we quickly take another water break. And it is. Uh, one of Quentin Tarantino's finer works, mm. uh, if you ask me, Django Unchained from 2012. It was a Western film that uh, Tarantino wrote and directed himself, starring James Jamie Foxx, sorry, Christoph Waltz, Leonardo DiCaprio, Kerry Washington, and Samuel L. Jackson. Um, wonderful, wonderful film that takes that typical Tarantino style and really, um, it, it's his take on the Western, which I really, really loved. Um, he tried to kind of do that again with The Hateful Eight a couple of years later. I didn't find that one quite as appealing, but Django has really gained a, a following. Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in particular was absolutely lauded, um, yeah. and rightfully so. There's the legend that's gone around um, in the, the short space of time since this film was released, the, what, what has it been, six years, that um, in a particular scene he slammed a glass down on a table and actually legitimately cut his hand wide open and kept acting including smearing some of his own blood on a fellow actor's face because he felt that the uh the way that the take had been going so far was uh wonderful and he didn't want to have to stop that 
The fact that that man has only ever received one Oscar out of six nominations is disgusting. It's it's honestly bewildering. It is. Um, it really is. I guess in 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 defense of that, he's come up against some other pretty wonderful performances at times. But well, you say that, and that is justified. But I don't think there's ever been a. Well, I think that one of the biggest snubs in Oscar history was him not winning the supporting actor award for What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Oh, I would absolutely agree with you. But um. Ever since then, though, he has only grown. You can see the passion that he puts into every performance. And Django is a perfect one if you haven't seen it. Uh, he doesn't play it. He is only a supporting role, but his his role is absolutely wonderful. And it's wonderful to see what he does under Quentin Tarantino, who yeah. normally takes on a much darker and um, more profane kind of tone yeah, um, yeah, to yeah, a yeah, lot totally. of what DiCaprio might normally do. So it's, it's wonderful to see the work that he does under Tarantino because it's... Um, it's normally some of his most impassioned performances. Um, in terms of costume design, casting, everything, this film was an absolute triumph. Um, it's bloody, it's beautiful Quentin Tarantino style, and it's also just thoroughly enjoyable. Um, it does go for, as expected with Tarantino, nearly three hours. Uh, but that's sort of his there MO is, at this point. There is, no, there is no point during that nearly three hours that you th- you wish it was shorter mm. because every little bit of it is just as wonderful and visually and beautifully acted as 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 the last bit. So it's a, it's a, it's a worthy inclusion at number six on our list. And right after our next song break, we're going to be getting into the top five. Ooh, the exciting ones. Oh, yes, this is very exciting. We'll be back with the top five films of the 2010s right after this song. This is... Now, I did say that I didn't like these songs earlier, but in my defense, this is from the stage musical version, which is coming to Sydney next year. Right. So this is for the first time in forever from the stage musical version of Frozen. The window is open, so is that door. I didn't know they did that anymore. And there's two nice ladies helping me get dressed. Thank you, thanks. For years I've roamed these empty halls. Why have a ballroom with no balls? Coronation day is just the best. There'll be actual real life people. It'll be totally strange. Wow, am I so ready for this change? But I'm somewhere in that zone Cause for the first time in forever I won't be alone Oh, I can't wait to meet everyone What if I meet the one? Tonight, imagine me gown and all Fetchingly draped against the wall The picture of sophisticated grace I suddenly see him standing there A beautiful stranger, tall and fair I want to stuff some chocolate in my face But then we'll laugh and talk all evening Which is totally bizarre
Welcome back to Anthology here on 106.9 Tune FM, where we're about to go to the top five films of the decade on Ben and I's list. Things are getting exciting up in here. It is really exciting. Well, we're going to get right into it, but we're going to be going to build the suspense a little bit um, by talking a little bit about this top five, um, mm. particularly the top three. The top three were, I love, the thing, I'm, the thing that I think um, shows just how good these films were. Jake and I pretty much unanimously agreed on what the top three should be very quickly. It took us a good 20, 30 minutes to determine what order the top three should be. We tried so many different combinations. We, we literally tried every possible combination in terms uh-huh. of which one should be one, two, and three. Yeah. Um, they were that close together in terms of quality. Well, that's right. And they were, it shows that they are, even though, for example, you might think, oh, well, coming third isn't really all that impressive, but three was a hair's breadth off of number one and number two was as well it was so like such and no disrespect obviously to any of the other films in this list they are all they're all in top 20 for a reason and obviously four and five are tremendous films as well but i do believe that three two and one are a cut above the rest i i would definitely agree with you these three are some wonderful films but let's jump into it so that we can get to those three yes we're going to start with number five our fifth best film of the decade, which might be a little bit controversial for being this high. Mm. It also might be controversial because we didn't include its direct sequel. Yes. But... I think we. I think there's a reason for that. I, there is a reason for that, and we'll go into that. Number five is Avengers Infinity War. Mm. Now, um, we all know Avengers Infinity War, fairly recent. It really made its way into meme culture fairly instantly and was potentially, um, arguably, part of the biggest crossover event in cinematic history, uh, bringing together all of the MCU characters into uh, two climactic kind of films. Um, Directed by Anthony and Joe Russo, who did a spectacular job on both Infinity War and Endgame. And, well, when you have a look at the Wikipedia page, the starring list is just insanely long. 
Um, so we won't even yeah. go into that. But I will special mention to Josh Brolin, who played Thanos. Um, I think he was a wonderful villain. In fact, I would say by far and away the MCU's best oh, villain. No contest. Absolutely no contest. I would say the only one that stands uh, within even a, a throwing distance of him is Tom Hiddleston as Loki. Um, and nah. other than that, other than that, Thanos is well and truly ahead. But Thanos um, literally killed him. <laughs> So um, the reason we didn't in, we the reason we didn't include Endgame, um, I think we said right from the start that it, that we would include one of them, but probably not both. I still um, and this is and the, I, I actually would have been I guess it would have been technically cheating. I would have been totally fine with including them both as one whole film, mm. like just for example calling it um, the Infinity oh, the Infinity Sagas, all of them. But say you know Avengers and like just having them because I truly believe they are. Better the same observed. story, yeah. It's two sides, it's two films of the same, two movies of the same, I guess, film and story. But I do think, and this is maybe just personal, um, this might be a personal thing, I did think that Infinity War was better than Endgame in terms of quality and certainly in terms of cultural influence. Obviously, oh, we cultural know, influence, no argument. We know that Endgame is now the highest, the highest grossing box office movie of all time, unadjusted for inflation. Um, but I... I, I Having watched both films again since they were cinematically released, I have to put Infinity War above Endgame. It's interesting to look at that because you'd, you'd, if you looked at it on that objective level, you'd argue that we've got it wrong by saying that Endgame is now the highest grossing film of all time, therefore it should definitely be yeah. in the top 20. But what I would say is that remember the, the cultural impact that Infinity War actually had, the, yeah. the snap, Thanos, all of that. They really took a, a hold of meme culture. Um, and I, I believe, I honestly believe that Infinity War is the reason that Endgame became the highest grossing film of all time. Yeah, because, absolutely. Because Infinity War made it to, I believe it is the third highest grossing film of all time. I will double check, but I believe you're Fourth, right. third or fourth. Oh, yeah. One or the other. Right. I'm not sure if it, pip, if it ended up pipping Titanic. But um, it, as a result, is, uh, I, I think that the hype that came from it got more people interested the second time around. And uh, it is fourth. It is um, fourth, yeah. So for oh, me... Sorry. Nope, sorry. I tell a lie. It's actually fifth. Fifth. Now, now it's fifth. Now it's fifth. Oh, what's taken, What's overtaken it? Fourth is The Force Awakens, funnily enough. Ah, okay. Mm. Interesting. Um, either way, it's one of the, still one of the highest grossing yeah, yeah, films yeah. of all time. And I, th I do believe that that little bit of extra box office revenue came from people being hyped up after Infinity War's release. Um, and I, I believe that Infinity War probably, arguably, is the um, the bigger cultural impact. And I would agree with you in terms of I found it probably the better film, particularly because it broke a little bit of a trend in terms of leaving off the film in with the superheroes down and defeated. Yeah. Um, the MCU had kind of, kind of gotten into a bit of a formula of um, going through villains film by film and um, in, the, in the course of a film, the superhero overcomes the villain. Um, and, and I liked that they really made an endeavor to break that, even if it did result in the second chapter just going that way anyway. It um, had a lot of empire about it, I feel. Yeah, the real empire strikes back of the MCU. I, I would agree with that kind of analogy. Hmm. Um, and overall, I think you can't sniff at the fact that it is such a massive ensemble film that still worked, despite having uh, something ridiculous like 60-plus um, named and supporting characters. Um, which is insane. Um, so a wonderful achievement from Marvel there. We'll move on because that's another one that I could probably talk about for a very long time. Yes. Uh, so, so we're into the top four. We're into the top four. Now, number four, again, might be... I feel it's... I think... No, I, I'm not going to... I think it's justified. I think it is... Um, 
it definitely is one of the best films of this decade. It is the, excuse me, the 2015, again, um, biographical film by, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce his... Um, do you want uh, the director? It would be Alejandro... Alejandro González Iñárritu. Thank you. I would butcher that. Uh-huh. So, no, um, uh, Mr. Alejandro, um, it was The Revenant, of course, for those of you that aren't entirely um, following along, starring, uh, it, based on Hugh Glass's experiences in 1823 after being abandoned by the rest of his frontiersmen. Um, it stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Hugh Glass, a film that he was given universal praise for that finally won him best uh, that finally won him his best acting gong at the Oscars. It was nearly a, it was nearly a flawless performance by him. It was so so well done. I was also nominated for several other Oscars, including Best Picture. Obviously, it uh, it fa- it fell. Um, it didn't quite get that gong, but it still was uh, nominated uh, Best Director, which Alejandro won. Um, and the film overall, it had a massive cultural impact. Of course, a lot of people do remember it for being Leonardo's Oscar win. But beyond that, the film itself was tremendous. Alejandro's directing was stupendously good. Mm. The lighting, the atmosphere, the cinematography, and the directing style and the art choices was just off the charts good. Um, And overall, it was one of the best films of 2015. I was actually disappointed when it did not win Best Picture. Um, I think that it definitely was... I would say the second best film of that year, but I think it, it had such a claim for that gong. And I think if anyone hasn't seen it, go and watch it because you really are missing out. Oh my, it's absolutely superb. And the best supporting actor nomination for uh, Tom Hardy as well was yes. very well justified. His performance is also excellent. Mm. Once again, I do love me some Tom Hardy. Um, he is an excellent, excellent actor. And he really showed it um, alongside Leonardo DiCaprio's wonderful performance in that as well. It was a. An absolutely brilliant film um, that really, I, I agree with you particularly on the atmosphere. The visuals in that film were spectacular. So, so good. So that is number four. We're going to get into this number three very quickly because we're pretty excited to talk about these films, I think. Yeah, this, uh, again, just to reiterate, this is, number. the top three was pretty much unanimous between the two of us. The uh, where each film should fit in this was very much tricky. I'd I'd say take the order with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, Number three could be your number one. Exactly. Any Um, of these top three films, it's very... We toyed with with all three of them being our number one. But number three uh, in our final order is Christopher Nolan's 2010 Inception. Right back to the start again. And deservedly so because the, the cultural impact of this was superb you still hear exception as in a little uh, suffix put onto any any kind of word where something's inside the same thing over and over again it's one of christopher nolan's masterpieces it was absolutely insanely good and um the visual effects in particular were completely innovative it really uh helped nolan take off as a really kind of um Doing something about dreaming in this sense was um, really took took off Nolan's reputation of having a more in-depth plot, having these kind of neurotic um, ideas that that I I really love about him as a Nolan fan. Um, The performance of Leonardo DiCaprio in this film was really wonderful, as well as uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, of course, Tom Hardy, Ellen Page... Um, who are all brilliant. 
Um, this is a film that I can watch over and over again and discover new things every time just because it's so beautifully written. Um, the, the visual effects are absolutely astonishing and it's, oh, it's, it's, it's pure wonderful in every sense. Um, it's, it's one that um, it's interesting to people see people's responses to as well because I don't think Nolan was quite as concerned about people um, really understanding necessarily the ending. The ending was deliberately left quite ambiguous and I love to hear people's responses to that because um, quite often people are a little bit concerned by the fact mm. that they don't quite know what the answer was. But I think... And, and I have done this in uh, in film. I've really focused on Inception in my film um, units that I've done as part of my university degree. And it's it's a very fascinating one to look at in terms of that's not the point. Nolan never wanted us to know what the ending was like. He, he put a whole lot of thought into this. This really, of all the films that we look at not of Nolan's and say, that was wonderful, that was wonderful, that was such an int- interesting idea. Inception was his passion project. Inception was his analysis of film. It was his analysis of um, dreaming. And it was this this idea that he'd had for such a long time in his head. Um, he actually presented the script at first to Warner Brothers in 2002. So he has had this idea in his head since he was a very young filmmaker indeed. And um, it really did turn out to be exactly the passion project we would have all expected. Oh, goodness. What a, trem- what a tremendous film. It's It's brilliant. Well, let's not dedicate too much time to it, though, because there's nope, two others in two this top more, three. Two more, and again, e- uh, certainly either any order for you, uh, is entirely justified. Number two is one that I am very, very pleased was this far up because I think it is one of the best sci-fi films of all time, not just of the decade, of all time. It was also released in 2015. That's why I sort of paused when I said I was disappointed when The Revenant didn't win Best Picture. Even though this film didn't win Best Picture either, it was certainly um, a strong contender. And it stars Matt Damon, obviously, as the lead, which ought, which um, earned him a uh, Best Actor nomination. I would have been disappointed if he'd won, purely because that means Leonardo DiCaprio wouldn't have. But any other year, it would have been justified. Adapted from the novel of the same name by Andy Weir, number two on our list is The Martian. Directed by Ridley Scott, starring Matt Damon, obviously, alongside Jessica Chastain, Kristen Wiig, Jeff Daniels, Michael Pina, Katie Mara, Sean Bean, Sebastian Stan, and Donald Glover, as well as some others. Um... The film was essentially about, uh, based on the novel, as I said. Mark Watney uh, gets stranded on Mars when he is separated from his crew who have to leave without him. And it pretty much tells the story of him being able to survive on Mars for over 600 de- well, souls, which is essentially um, the Mars the Mars's, uh, equivalent of a day. It was highly praised when it was released, justifiably so as well. Like I said, arguably one of my favorite well arguably my favorite film of 2015 alongside the revenant matt damon absolutely slayed it as mark watney the science in it was exceptional it was explained so well it was a science film where a sci-fi film where surprisingly no one died and one of the things it was lauded for was the fact that the science in the film and the book obviously by extension was accurate 100 percent accurate everything that happened in that film could happen in real life and considering we're looking at sending people to mars by the end of next decade um it's a feasible thing that could potentially happen so i have to obviously end the the novel is tremendous the book is wonderful it is a very very good sci-fi book and the movie came along and did the book justice I um I wouldn't have been disappointed to see this film as number one. I th- obviously, we have our number one coming up next, but 
The Martian is a very, very deserving runner-up, um, released in all formats everywhere. Watch this film because it is one of Matt Damon's best performances and Ridley Scott once oh. again shows why he is the king of sci-fi. Return sci-fi. of Ridley Scott. Yeah. Oh, man. The undisputed brilliant. king of sci-fi, that man. Oh, absolutely. Well, number one, Ben. Number one is one that I admittedly I, I pushed for a little harder than you did. I know you were sort of more in favor of Inception. Um but and that's because I'm opinionated, and you'll find out why. Yes, um, I'm opinionated between those two, these two films, um, for a particular reason. And uh, but this film, I do agree, is definitely one of the best of this decade. I, as we said, uh, we unanimously agreed on its c- inclusion in the top three. The order was um, debated long and hard, and eventually we settled on um, this uh, one. on this one as number one. And directed, of course, by Christopher Nolan. Directed by Christopher Nolan, which is why I'm so opinionated on which one's better and which one's worse, because I've done a lot of work on Nolan's work. From the year 2017, we have... Dunkirk. Dunkirk takes our title, tops the list and takes the title of our best film of the 2010s. I really did push for this one because I think it is Christopher Nolan's, if not his best, certainly one of his best the cast, including um, Fionn Whitehead, Tom Glynn Carney, Jack Loud, and Harry Styles, funnily enough. Um, Kenneth Branagh was up there as well. Tom Hardy again. Music by Hans Zimmer, who is an absolute beast. The film was just an absolute cinematic piece de resistance. It was I will agree. Perfect. It's one of Nolan's best works. Um, I love when he works with Hans Zimmer. Um, the, the soundtrack was absolutely bone-chilling. It was beautiful. Um, I loved the parallel narratives. I really think that they worked very, very well. Nolan likes taking those risks in terms of the way that he um, he structured structures his stories, and this one was definitely one that all came together at the end in a really satisfying conclusion. I want to make special mention of Tom Hardy, who um, perhaps didn't have as big a role as he normally would in mm. a Nolan film, but still made that role his own, and it was one of the more compelling stories in the film. And as I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Hacksaw Ridge, this is a film that broke the, um, broke the habit of war films trying to be confronting and get an emotional appeal out of being violent and being gory or showing the, the real horrors of war, which, which has its merits. We need to show the horrors of war, but it's done a lot. Mm. And this is one that really portrayed the horrors of war through the tension of the Allied soldiers being trapped in Dunkirk. Um, it was beautiful and it was haunting and there was this great, uh, I think that's where Hans Zimmer's score really shined, was getting this this idea of tension across that they were trapped there, that there was no way out and that death was not there yet, but it was imminent that it was coming and it was closing in on them um, closer and closer. And it was this gorgeous thriller that was um, really, really shot beautifully. I love the fact that they shot it in um, in 65 millimeter mm. because it gave it a whole new um, aesthetic. That oh, it was it, it's gorgeous from start to finish. And like I said, it betw- it's between that and Inception for me. Personally, I prefer Inception as one of Nolan's works, but I definitely agree that they are very close, and both of them are very good works. And I definitely agree on both of them being up in this top three. There is certainly a case to be made that Inception had a bigger cultural influence, but for me, just looking at the the way the films are shot and the content of each film, I just think every time I watch Dunkirk, I am never, I never cease to be just taken aback and just blown away by how much skill everyone involved on that film had. It was 
nearly flawless. And all due respect to Guillermo del Toro, but I think it was a massive snub that Christopher Nolan missed out on the best director not uh, gong that year to uh, Guillermo del Toro for Shape of Water. And I think it's a, another big snub that uh, Dunkirk fa- fell to uh, Shape of Water in terms of the best picture nomina- uh, award. Um, certainly, I think, my, f- uh, in my opinion, it is the best film of this decade. And it shows, given that Christopher Nolan was on this list three times. On this list three times and twice in the top three. Tw- twice in the top three. It makes me, first of all, exceptionally excited for Tenet coming Ooh. out in July 17th, I've, I've I believe, literally, next year. As we've been speaking, I've literally just watched the trailer. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I am very excited for that. Um, keep an eye on Christopher Nolan's work because he is still relatively... Um, young and new to the the whole directing game, so there's plenty more to come from him. And my goodness, he is uh, he's created some masterpieces this decade. Absolutely, um, I'm very very happy with how our um, awards were, with how our list went. I can't floor any placing of any of them, and I think that all of the films that were here were justified. And for me, Dunkirk, The Martian, and Inception are a more than worthy top three films of 2010 to 2019. There you go. That's our top. 20 of the 2010s done and dusted top spot going to Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk with uh, silver going to Ridley Scott's The Martian and bronze to Christopher Nolan again with Inception. Mm. Well, you have been listening to Anthology here on 106.9 Tune FM. It's been a pleasure to see out 2019 with you. Just a few hours to go until the ball drops. So I was going to say, rain in the new year, everyone. Let's hope that 2020 brings many, much happiness and joy. And, well, for all of us here in New South Wales, a lot of bloody rain would be nice. That would be lovely. Thank you for tuning in to Anthology in 2019. We will be right back in a week's time on the 7th of January. There'll be no break or anything like that. And we'll be right back into all the usual business with guests on the show and talking about all the wonderful theatre that we're going to have in 2020. But for now, thank you for being such wonderful listeners and tuning in. And uh, we will see you next time here on Anthology. See you later.